Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Corinthians and excited to be diving into this uh, new series. Uh, before we take that first step, I should mention as well uh, one announcement I neglected earlier, and that is that we're uh, we're in the revamp process of the old Cross Creek Church website. Apparently, you're supposed to renew these things more than like every six years. So uh, with the gracious help, actually, of some folks in our our church that uh, work in that line of things, we, we're we're mo- we're moving up. We're, we're adjusting things. We're getting getting it revamped. So it hasn't officially transitioned or launched yet, but it's happening this week. So if you're one of those that goes to the Cross Creek website every day just to check, see what might be happening, what might be there. Uh, just know that it'll it'll have a facelift, if you will, and be able to work better on mobile formats and all of those all of those things trying to keep uh, keep up with the time. So that's uh, that's coming coming this week, probably. So we turn to first uh, Corinthians uh, last week. I actually kind of went ahead and got started and looked at the first few verses here and and walked through some overview of. The, the life of the Corinthian church and that community and so forth. I'll say a few things about it again today, but I would encourage you, if you were absent last week, uh, get online, speak on a website, and just download that message. In fact, if, you desire, if you're in and out, you know, on a, maybe a regular basis and traveling and so forth, miss Sundays from time to time, you can set that up on a little podcast, and you can just, if you miss, you can listen to it on your, your iPhone or whatever you use for those, those kind of things. But I would encourage you to listen to last week's message because it really was our, our introduction to, uh, to this book as we begin to move forward. But I'll mention a couple of things I highlighted last week. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote this book, uh, 1 Corinthians, found in the New Testament. If you're still kind of paging through to, to track it down, it's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and Romans. It's before you get to, to Hebrews there. And it's written by the Apostle Paul. He went to, to this uh, area of Corinth which was a city in Greece, as you can see from a little map in the back of your worship guide, if you if you want to turn there. And he went there around the year 50 and helped to establish that church around the year 54. He uh, wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to that church, as you will see from the map. If you do turn to the sermon notes section in your worship guide, uh, Corinth was understandably a prosperous place with its location between north and south uh, Greece and then an intersection between the sides as far as naval travel as well, marine travel. And not every city, as we mentioned last week, that's large and prosperous like Corinth was, is inherently associated with negative morality. But in fact, that was the case for Corinth. I mentioned last week it would be like if if we imagine the the city Las Vegas being a verb. You know, Pastor, I, I Las Vegas last week. I got to confess that to you. It, it was spoken of that way. To Corinthian eyes was to live a sort of greedy, selfish, self-centered, substance abuse, uh, sexual immorality lifestyle. That's what the word meant. So it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul went to this city, the city where they had the Acro Corinth with a thousand priestesses worshiping false gods during the day and coming down to practice the so-called uh, world's oldest profession in the city at night. The Temple of Apollo, uh, a temple to uh, male uh, masculine prowess that was really geared towards male to male uh, sexuality. All of these things are just a little taste of what was going on in the city of Corinth. That really was about 250,000 people in the time that the Apostle Paul got there, and it had only been rebuilt for about a hundred years. So, very prosperous place, but also a very lost place. And particularly interesting to see that the Apostle Paul chose to go there, right? Uh, because 
of how large it was, because of how depraved it was. It would seem to be intimidating. And yet, Apostle Paul was excited to see the gospel go forth. And in many ways, uh, Birmingham, not that different. Our, certainly our broader American culture, not that different from the Corinthian culture as well. And today, as we turn to our verses, we see uh, how that particular uh, pride that comes with sort of uh, success and uh, even spiritual pride that comes with rapid growth spiritually can can often infect us with a divisive spirit. We're going to look in particular this week how that uh, was part of the life of the church in Corinth and what it means for us today as we consider the divisions that we may have in our own midst here or that may uh, separate us from one another and how Christ unites us, how vital it is to enjoy that full fellowship that he desires for us to have. Not that we'd be a monolith, not that we'd all be the same, but that we'd actually be learning through the gospel to love one another across those natural maybe divisions and divides that we have from each other. And then that we'd be able to show that love to a watching world in a powerful way. So let's take a look at what's going on in the Corinthian church today, and then we'll see what lessons we can learn from it. I'm going to read uh, verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way to 31. It's a pretty good, good chunk, but we're going to focus on verses 10 uh, through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standings. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ, whom has made our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, 
Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray again together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you administer to us through your word now and teach us good things that we might know you, draw closer to you and be transformed. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have taken in the Lord of the Rings uh, movies. Probably a number of us have. It's been a little while since I watched uh, through them, so I'm not sure I even remember which of the movies this scene was in. But you'll recall it. The uh, dwarves, the elves, the hobbits and the men are gathered together and they're kind of holed up in that Rivendell place. Right. And Saruman and the forces of evil and so forth are beginning to expand in that Middle Earth world of theirs. And they're trying to decide what to do. And there's Baromir and Aragorn and Gimli and Frodo and Sam and all of them are there. And they're trying to figure out what to do. But they're divided. They're at each other's throats and they're bringing up old past failings of each group of people. And they're not sure they can figure out how to even get along or decide what to do, let alone to go forth and fulfill the mission that they know they need. And eventually Frodo, I think it was sort of representing that virtue of humility. Those humble hobbits, little people that are often ignored by the world uh, comes in. And rallies them together and says, hey, we've got we've got something we've got to do here. We've got to figure out how to get along so that we can do it. It's a picture, really, of how we are in the church. We're not all the same. We don't all value the same things. We've got different opinions, uh, probably, about uh, matters of spiritual importance, about matters of music, about matters of political uh, event. We come from different directions, maybe socioeconomically as well. And yet God brings us together by his working in us here in this particular church body. More than that, we see a a, a sort of citywide church in a a worldwide church with different divisions and uh, delineations. And the question for us today that's uh, hopefully pretty clear for us from what Paul speaks about in these verses is is that there's a need for humble unity in the place of the prideful divisions that we uh, tend to bring to surface. Now, we're really blessed here, I would say, at Cross Creek Church as a six-year-old church in in the new church world, Uh, Oftentimes, churches struggle with significant division that turns into actual divisiveness and factions and splits and things like that. And so I would say God has been very gracious to us. I I pray about that often. He's been kind to us to allow us to love one another, to forgive each other, to see past the differences, to recognize things that are really not of great, you know, spiritual importance, but that might be sort of important to to us, just a particular scruple we have, and to love each other in that way. So I say that. And at the same time, we realize from this very young church in Corinth that it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long at all. In fact, I'm going to mention earlier uh, Clement or later, I'm sorry, Clement of Rome, who's going to write in the year 95. So about 45 years after Paul's there, uh, a letter to the church in Corinth. And it's interesting because he notes that they've gone. They will have gone through several more cycles. 
it appears from his letter that they respond to what the Apostle Paul says. And they actually do develop a more healthy life, body life as a church. But then again, by the time he's writing to them in 95, they've sort of tanked again in a significant way. So they had actually for a short while become a model of folks from a variety of backgrounds that are able to be united in in Christ. So here's the main idea for us today. And you can follow along in your note section in your worship guide if you want to. It's just this, that because of Jesus, we'll explain what that means in a minute. We should resist prideful divisions and we should seek humble unity. Take a look with me at verse 11. We see what's going on. A report has come to Paul again when he's writing this letter. He's now removed from Corinth, this church that he had been with for about 18 months and pouring into. And he says, hey, I I, I hear some bad news. Okay, and we we know that sometimes churches in our community get associated with certain things. And he's saying, I hear a, a word, a report that there's people really divided in your midst. I've already mentioned some of the reasons we can tend to divide. But but here's what's important for us to realize about the divisions in Corinth. Okay, the first thing is probably this, that, that we're bound to have different groups in an individual church and in the church worldwide. Right. And there's going to be things that we value more than other folks, whether they're theological issues or worship issues or or other preferences that we've got. That's not in itself a a problem. So we should make sure we understand that first. It's not not that we should be monolithic. Second thing is uh, that we're going to probably tend to emphasize some of those things more than others. Right. Certain uh, groups or or, people. Groups of folks within the church body or even denominations are going to emphasize those. Again, that's not really bad in itself. The problem is, is when we don't recognize what we're doing. Right. And when what we're doing takes our eyes off of the unity that we have in Christ, the connection kind of fades and the division is sort of elevated. That's the problem when it takes precedence. I like what David Pryor says. He's a commentary writer that I've been using as we've been working through these messages. And he says this, when a Christian or a group of Christians becomes totally absorbed in one aspect of the truth to the neglect or exclusion or even denial of the whole truth as it is in Jesus, then the danger point is reached. Okay. so the first question for us today is probably are there areas in our life where that's kind of happening? Where maybe we're, again, it's, it's not bad to, to have some scruples or opinions or views on things, but do we recognize that that's where we stand, that that's who we are? That's our understanding, to recognize it and recognize it for what it is. So if discerning a truth or, as Paul shows us, following a particular mentor or embracing a certain cause or connecting with a certain group, if those things begin to take precedence over what Jesus is doing in the church at large, We've got a problem. We're going to take a look in a minute at what each of these particular groups Paul identifies are dealing with, because I think that'll help us give us some tangible application. But let me let me ask this question first, uh, sort of the reverse. Are there occasions when we should divide? When we should separate? Absolutely. 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 The scriptures say that unity is founded. The the biblical unity is founded in a combination of truth and love. So where there's significant division on the core true issues of the Christian faith, 
there really can't be unity. The Apostle Paul talks about that in other letters in the book of Galatians. If you have ever read that first chapter, he says, interestingly, he says, you know, even if an angel from heaven comes down or, or if some other person, he says, even if I show back up again, the Apostle Paul, the one who gave you the gospel, shared it with you, said, and I give you a different gospel or that angel gives you a different message. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. That's that's anathema. He's pretty dogmatic about it. Jesus said to his disciples, he says, you know, following me might mean that you leave behind father and mother and brother and sisters. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. So the gospel message is not really like a go on to get along message. It's not really even a message of what we would call in our culture tolerance. It's a message of in the truth of Christ, loving one another through differences that we might have. Does that make sense? So we need to understand that first, that there's a place to divide. You know, someone who has all truth and no love, we would probably say is dogmatic. Right. If every opinion that you have is the most important thing in the universe to you, then it's probably a dogmatism. And it's hard to really love other people when when we're that way. Uh, Conversely, if we've got all love and no truth. You have sort of the general American population today, right? We, we love to just kind of ignore the fact that there's issues of truth that are actually important. And we just want to figure out some way to love each other when we have no real basis for it. So there's these four groups in Corinth. Let's take a look at those and see how they're dividing, not for reasons that are necessary or essential, but for reasons that aren't really all that important at all. The first group, and I hope you all track with me on this because I think it really is interesting and uh, to look at, at how these groups formed and what some of their bases are and maybe how it applies directly to us today. The first group that Paul identifies is the folks that say, I follow Paul. Look there in verse 12. And on the surface, we may say, well, it was hard to find out what these groups thought. But we know later in, in Corinthians that Paul's going to say, hey, I was the father of many of you in the faith. It seems like probably the Paul group were folks that were just loyal to him. He was the one who had influenced them and maybe helped lead them to Christ or at least disciple them in their early years, was help founding that church. And when somebody pours into your life that way, even though you might know in your mind that's just a, an ambassador, just an emissary for the Lord, it's easy to be drawn up in who they are and maybe even form a group around that personality. It's interesting when uh, I've shared, I'm sure, this story before when I was in uh, in between, I guess, the semester break, winter break of my freshman year in college. I went with uh, my good buddy, David Norman, up to North Carolina area. And while we were up there, we decided to do some rock climbing. Some of you all have heard this story before. And uh, it got up on this huge face and we weren't really trained rock climbers, but we had done a lot enough of it that we, we were dangerous. Right. We thought we thought we knew what we were doing. And sure enough. Uh, not my friend, but myself, got up there in a place with about a hundred foot straight drop down to the rocks below that I couldn't figure out my way out of. And I was slipping further and further off of the little precipice that I was hanging on to. So serious was it that even, you know, in the sort of college guy macho attitude, I told David, I need help. You know, I kind of gave up some point. I can't get out of here. Go get help. He ran miles, drove miles. Hours later, when I was still slipping off that cold December precipice, uh, folks came through the woods. A whole team of people, like 12 folks, 
came to rescue me. Uh, there was one key lead guy that helped me get down. Of course, I was incredibly thankful for him. As they informed me when I hit the ground, they waited until then to let me know that several people had been killed in that spot over the last year. Others had been, you know, paralyzed for life because of falling from that same area. It was tempting, apparently, for people to go out there without the proper equipment. And, and, and I had that response that you can imagine. Not just for the main guy who had kind of climbed up there and helped me down, but for the guys that were just holding the rope down below. You know, they'd left their work and come up there. I mean, I was a college kid with maybe $40 in my wallet, and I took every bit of that money and was shelling it out, right, to those guys. Just something to say, thank you for saving my life. I know this is only $3 I got to give you, but I'm responding in some way. Somebody helps save you. Somebody helps rescue you. You kind of respond. The people in this Corinthian church probably viewed that way to Paul. They were they had some allegiance to him. They had some extreme thankfulness to them. Probably another part of this, too, was kind of the, even those young church. They already had sort of the good old days. I remember when Pastor Paul was here, how we did things back then. That's kind of shouldn't we do it all that way forever? Because the Apostle Paul was here. We should do it that way. So we see this and it makes us ask the question today. You know, what are those folks that have invested in us spiritually or maybe even currently are investing in us in our church, including your pastor up here, that maybe we're uh, instilling a little bit uh, too much allegiance into that? They wouldn't claim that they want that allegiance or that uh, adherence, but that we're nevertheless putting in them because they've had a good impact in our life. It's just a, a sort of error we fall into because of a good thing. And what are those things? Maybe this gets more to the core for us. One of those things in our church, again, only six years old, but that are sort of the old guard, new guard things. Where are those areas where maybe folks that have been here from the beginning are just eh, been here from the beginning? Those new folks don't they don't quite get what's involved in this. Right. They're not really engaging the way we like to. And the newer folks are sort of shaking their heads. Man, can we not develop something New? Can we not go in some new direction? Are we constrained to the way things have always been? Those things can develop pretty quickly. So that's the Paul group for us. The Apollos group is a little more interesting, and I'll admit, uh, maybe a little bit more speculative as to all of what was going on here. But I think we can piece it together. The Apollos group, we find out from Acts 18 and 19 that Apollos was from Alexandria. And as we go further on in First Corinthians, even just in the last part of this passage we read, where it talks about wisdom and folly and so forth, there was a real value on um, sort of elevated thought and elevated wisdom and elevated speech and how you say things. And it's interesting to note that Apollos was from this place called Alexandria. Now, the Apostle Paul is no slouch. If you picked up the book of Romans ever and started to read through it, you realize you're in deep water theologically, philosophically pretty quick, right? You can get through it, but it's not simple. So Paul was no lightweight, but, you know, there's a difference between community college and state college and state college and Harvard. And Apollos, we would say, was from Harvard. Alexandria kind of represented that. And he was particularly from that in the sense that he had some eloquence, the way he spoke and delivered his message. And we know uh, how that that is. You know, it's kind of hard to believe somebody superior to Paul. But Paul acknowledges later that he's he's not the best speaker. You know, some folks we read and we love to read them. And then you go hear him somewhere at a seminar and you realize, oh, okay, I still really like hearing them, but 
they're better at writing stuff than they are at speaking. Uh, some pastors, some leaders are real good at speaking, you know, sincerely and from the heart. Others are really good at uh, speaking passionately and engaging folks. Some are very systematic and able to put together thoughts in an organized way that we can digest. Some are just really entertaining. We just like to listen to them. They're amusing people. You can understand how where there's this value for this elevated speech and eloquence. We see it in our own time, don't we? In our culture at large. We're drawn into somebody who looks a certain way, delivers a message in a certain way, speaks a certain way. And we may look past. In fact, we do it even in the church. Think about the church leaders and pastors that have fallen and stumbled even in the last year or two. We look past what might be character issues. We even look past might be theological issues because of the person, of how they speak. Right. Those are important values to us. And it's not bad for someone to speak effectively and powerfully for the Lord. But this Apollos group apparently had kind of rallied around that way of doing things. And anybody else that didn't kind of measure up to that, they weren't going to listen to. Where's that affecting and infecting us as a church body? Third group we see is this Peter group. In back in verse 12, it says, I follow Cephas, which is just uh, uh, the Greek name for for Peter. And we don't uh, know for sure, but it's uh, possible that Peter had actually visited the church in Corinth as well. Him and Paul kind of covered some of the same territory. At the very least, some of his followers and adherents were influential there, we see. And it would seem from the rest of Scripture and from what we read in First Corinthians that that this group was probably the sort of legalistic side of things. Right. There's always that tendency uh, and it's and it's often well-meaning for us. We see our own struggles and we know that in order to really walk faithfully with the Lord, we need to put certain constraints in our life or put certain directions to make sure we pursue the Lord. And, and then that sort of rule that we make for ourselves to help ourselves spiritually, we want to apply to everybody else. Okay? And it's not surprising. You imagine how the apostle, you know, Paul and Peter bickered back and forth over circumcision. And we see in the book of Acts, it's not surprising if you have people offering food, sacrificed to idols in the Corinthian setting, and some people are eating it and some people aren't. If you're a kosher person, especially a sort of completed Jew coming out of that background, and there's regular food that's considered unholy for you, imagine how you would feel about the food that was regular food and offered up to this false god. Right. That would just be appalling to you. So this is a significant divide and division. This was maybe the uh, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do group in the church. And uh, and, and it re- was a reminder to me this week, you know, uh, straight jackets, straight jackets are good for keeping you from scratching your own face. If you might damage yourself and from scratching other people, if you might try to. But they're pretty limiting, aren't they? Right. So that's the kind of thing that I think we see happening with the Cephas group. Maybe it's our uh, sort of perspective on parenting that we've got uh, opinions about, strong opinions. Maybe it's political issues that we have opinions about. Maybe it's things in the church that we've sort of made a law. This is how it has to be done, even when the Lord's given us freedom on those things. Cephas group seems to be along those lines. And Paul is challenging them. Then we get to this last group. The Christ group. 
What, what can be wrong with that? These guys should be the slam dunk. All right. We've got the, the Christ group, it says, uh, as the last one there in verse 12. That was interesting, you know, just studying and thinking through this. Uh, what's the deal there? Well, it sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? But imagine this church where you've got all these other sort of identifiable factions that are sort of behind these particular leaders or followings, right? The Kellerites and the Piperites and the MacArthurites and the Chavichanites and the whoever, you name them. Behind these sort of theological leaders and opinions, there would be that natural tendency for there to be a fourth group, right? A group that says, we don't do that. We're above that. We're just the Christ group. We're just going to follow Christ. And that's the way, you know, rather than working out our differences and talking to one another and forgiving and showing grace, we're just going to rise above it. We won't have any opinions about those matters, right, that divide. Well, we can see that in our own time as well, and it's nothing new. There would be those today that said, I'm not going to follow the the, uh, church that comes in line with Luther. I'm not going to follow the church that comes in line with Calvin or with the Pope or whoever that has some leader. We're going to not have any kind of affiliation or connection, non-denominational, whatever you want to call it. It's interesting. That's that's actually nothing new. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen a church called the Church of Christ. Ever seen one of those? They're kind of all over the place in our country. Do you know what where that stems from? Back in the 1800s, folks have said, we're not going to be a part of this division and divisiveness between these different denominations and their opinion. We're going to be, think about the title for a minute, the Church of Christ. We're going to simply be followers of Christ. Of course, now today, that church has certain views like every other church does on, are you going to have elders? Are you going to have deacons? Are you going to baptize babies or not baptize babies? Are you going to have a more reformed theological sovereignty of God emphasis or more free will? Emphasis? You know, which way are you going to put things together? And I like what David Pryor says here. He says the interesting point about the Christ party, their Christ group, is that they tend sooner or rather later, rather than later, to hive off and form their own church mainly because they come eventually to feel that the average local church is not spiritual enough, right? So there's always going to be that tendency. We're going to sort of rise above this, and actually what you do is sort of create another group, just create another division instead of working through those issues that maybe divide. So this is the lay of the land that the Apostle Paul gives to us. And it is interesting, again, Reading a little bit from this Clement of Rome in 95, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he identifies three groups, Apollos, Paul, and Cephas group that are still there in the church, which is a little disappointing. It's interesting. He doesn't say anything about the Christ group. Probably had already pulled, pulled out, right? Gone their own way. Well, how do we deal with all of this in brief in our couple of minutes remaining? Well, we deal with it through Jesus, Right. We said because of Jesus, we should set aside our prideful divisions and seek to or work through, I guess, our prideful divisions and seek humble unity. Take a look with me down in verse 13, and it tells us some of how we might begin to do that. The first thing we see is that we can do it through the completeness that we all have in Christ. His first question there is Christ divided. Can you chop Christ, excuse the analogy, up into pieces and each have a little segment of him? Absolutely not. You know, these are all rhetorical questions that he's asking. Christ is united. 
He brings us together with one another. He's a united person. And if we're in him, the body of Christ, we ought to seek to be united as much as we can. So there's completeness through Christ. He goes on and he says, was Paul crucified for you? You know, he takes the brunt on himself. He uses himself as the example. And of course, it's absurd. No, he wasn't. Who was crucified for them? Christ was. The cross is central to their relationship with each other. Again, this guy Pryor helps out. He says, whenever Christians give their allegiance to any human personality, such as a gifted preacher or pastor, they have taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ. They'll inevitably be disunity. Jesus is the only one who can unite men and women, and he does so through the cross. Because we can come to God only via the cross, and the ground there is level. Right? The ground is level. Third thing, third C in verse 13, is what I call the crown. Paul says, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Okay? Baptism wasn't just some uh, spiritual... Ritual, it was it symbolizes allegiance to Christ, recognizing his lordship. Just like many of us, if we've come to faith in Christ and we've seen it in the last couple of months, adults that have come into our church body who are surrendering their life to Christ and obeying, showing the lordship of Jesus through taking that sign, that symbol, that marking of the people of God, baptism. And so it's a reminder that we're under the same Lord. Okay, so we've got completeness in Christ. We're united in the cross of Christ. And then we're under his lordship together. He's the one who rules over us. Two last things. And we won't read through all of verses 18 down through the end of the chapter. But there's two concepts that are identified there that are crucial to helping us have the kind of unity Paul's urging us to. One is the nature of the gospel. Did you read all this stuff about wisdom and foolishness and folly and so forth? He's basically saying this. He said, I don't care whether you come from sort of a Jewish highly religious background and so forth, or whether you come from the Greek pagan background, everybody's got to come to a breaking point in order to recognize their need for Jesus. Everybody's got to recognize that we're broken and lost and we need a savior, a righteous one to take our place. When we have that gospel, we should be humble people, not just humble before God, but more and more humble with one another. So much of our divisiveness and our disunity comes from pride. And then the second and last part of that is the nature of our position. Now, I realize this description of verse 26 and following might not fit all of us here. We live in America, uh, you know, in the 21st century and in our area of town as well, where we probably are among even those that are sort of scraping by, believe it or not, are probably among the top five percent of wealth in the world. In terms of how we do and the prosperity we enjoy, some here, maybe even uh, higher up on that ladder. So it's interesting, though, nevertheless, to hear this reminder from the Apostle Paul that wherever we come from, that uh, we're actually impoverished without Jesus. And the Corinthians were, in fact, from that background. The people who had responded, many of them that had responded to Christ, were the very poorest. And I'll tell you what that's happening today. I continue to read this book, and I'm going to do a Sunday school class next semester on it for sure, on uh, The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins. And it's fascinating. People are coming to faith in Christ rapidly by the thousands every week in Africa and other parts of the world. And some of these places are very impoverished. Parts of Asia, folks live a very subsistence living. The face of Christianity worldwide is changing 
And, and what's happening is millions and millions of people in the next 20, 30 years are going to come to faith in Christ. And they won't be probably from the prosperous background that you and I enjoy. That's the global form of Christianity that's that's happening. That's the nature, really, of all our position before the Lord. The Apostle Paul reminds them they were poor. They were needy. And Jesus has blessed them with great wealth in the gospel. Well, I said earlier, it was uh, interesting, powerful to be down at the uh, Festival of Hope this last uh, this last weekend, uh, Friday night to be there. And I'll tell you what was really exciting about it was to see some of this stuff lived out. Right. Hopefully we're doing it here at Cross Creek Church, but especially when you bring folks together that are from different denominations and you had, you know, the Peters family that were sitting there with their hands like this and clapping. You know, it was as exuberant as we probably got. I stood up one time. I don't know. I got into it. I stood up. Nobody else really stood up at that moment, but I felt it was a stand up time. And, and, And then you had folks that were, you know. This kind of thing the entire time we were there and you had all, all in between and you had folks from different backgrounds and ethnicities and all of those diversities that you could kind of imagine were uh, were all there together worshiping the Lord. And it was a picture, a picture, too, that we enjoy here today of God bringing us together from our different backgrounds. And the questions for us today are this. Are, are we uh, humbled by the gospel To a place where we can seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness to those around us who we have differences with. Are there people maybe even in our church body here that we need to go and talk to? Because we got maybe they don't even know we have some kind of difference with them, but we need to talk to them. Uh, Are there ways that the completeness of Christ, the cross of Christ and the crown, the lordship of Christ would uh, would work in our hearts so that we might, even though we are, I think a very unified body might be even more so that way might uh, enjoy a deeper fellowship through that and might shine the light of Christ all the more boldly to a watching world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the places that it challenges us. Uh, Lord, we just ask that you administer to us through the things we've heard today. Lord, that the fellowship we enjoy would be all that much uh, deeper in our particular church body. That where we can, we would reach across uh, boundaries and barriers to engage and connect with uh, other believers that are uh, part of other denominations or affiliations. Lord, that we would continue through our missions mindset and also personally to have a heart for the nations, for people around us that maybe are even in our community here. Maybe look different, come from a different sort of status or class than us or whatever those things are, Lord, that you give us a heart to Reach across those in the name of Christ for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.